0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're the Trade Trade Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on The Trade Guys, we'll discuss the latest European sanctions on Russia, what's next for IPEF, and our favorite neighbors to the north, King of the North all in this next episode of The Trade Guys. Guys, it's been a few weeks since we've done a sanctions check-in on the show. What is new in terms of Russia sanctions? I know there's a lot
1: going on in Europe. Well, the big new thing is the European Union producing its sixth tranche, which is significant because they've decided to cut off shipments of Russian oil by sea. They maintained an exception for uh, pipeline oil entirely at the insistence of Hungary and uh, Prime Minister Orban, who argued that as a landlocked country, they're dependent, I think, for some 60% via pipeline. And so they decided the only way they could get unanimity on the package was to carve out this exception, which also benefits Slovakia and the Czech Republic, although I think they were not as vocal in the argument. So it's a loophole. It's ironic as a loophole because the pipeline in question, as I recall, runs through Ukraine. So there's always the possibility, one, that the Ukrainians could shut it off. Or two, the more uh, ironic possibility would be the Russians bomb it by mistake and end up actually literally shooting themselves in the foot. <laughs> There's more than a slim possibility they might shoot and miss. And, you know, they're targeting so far suggests that's a real possibility. Yeah. Uh, the, the interesting thing about this, and I talked to somebody from the EU about this and they made a decision early on to roll out new packages every couple of weeks of sanctions, and it was deliberate. And it wasn't because, oh, we just thought of something else. Let's have a new package. It was deliberate in the sense that they wanted people to constantly be reminded of what was going on and what the Russians were doing. And they thought one of the best ways to do that was every week or two weeks, as the case may be, let's roll out a new set of things to remind people of what's going on. And I think it's been an effective strategy. People have not forgotten the war. They've not forgotten the Ukrainians. And it's one that I think the United States is kind of adopting too, although not quite as formally. This latest package suggests they had to go along with a loophole, which means future packages might be harder to get even than this one, which is a little worrisome. And it means that the Russians are not going to be hurt as much as they really need to be hurt because that's the main source of their revenue. Well, look, we've talked about this frequently on the show since
2: the invasion in, uh, in February. And I think the place I always start is, are any of these sanctions having a visible deterrent effect on Russia? And my conclusion is no. I'll, I'll be happy to be proven wrong. but Or, or, the, no, or not yet. Not, not yet. There's, that doesn't appear to affect what the Russians are doing in the least so far. So that's an important issue. And Europe continues to tighten. But once again, their moves on crude oil are sometime in the future. Russia still seems to be finding markets for its crude oil. And Europe still acquires almost all the natural gas that it used to buy from Russia still gets it from Russia. So that's an important factor because the EU internal conflicts that the one Bill mentioned with Hungary are likely to sharpen if you try to further restrict things like Russian natural gas, mostly because German industrial competitiveness relies on Russian natural gas, and there's no reasonable substitute. So between the lack of deterrence in, in terms of Russia in action and the cracks that seem to be forming in Europe, this is going to take some management to, to make it work better than it is now. Next thing I'd look at is what's happening in the U.S. Well, I would note that voters are blaming the president of the United States and not the president of Russia for high gas prices. So the Biden administration has worked very hard to make this, what they call Putin's price increase. And the polling I saw from Trafalgar and some other organizations say that that's not selling. <laughs> no, the, so, P- the Putin tax
0: is not selling in America so far. Yeah,
2: right. So I mean, point, point, to be fair, to be know, fair, we're, they're we're, not we're, doing we're, a great job at selling it. Well, that's true. We also put all our sanctions on the financial constraints and the attachment of Russian foreign currency reserves and other sanctions all in one blob up front and have not escalated the way Europe has. I don't, I don't know what else we can do to create a deterrent effect, but it's not having it yet. Where I would give them a B plus is on export controls. The U.S. and Europe seem to be working well. And this, of course, is a specialty of Bill, so I'll be interested in his perspective as well. But that seems to be someplace where U.S.-EU cooperation Is actually bearing some fruit.
0: Bill, I got to ask you though, before we get into this second part here, why is the administration, in your view, having such a hard time selling the fact that our economy is screwed up and our prices are insane because of Putin? I
1: guess I'm a little bit cranky about the the American people right now.
0: (laughs) This is shocking, Scott. (laughs) It's all their fault.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Their opinions are their own, they have to own their opinions. Damn those voters. Those Americans. (laughs) I think on the inflation side, gas is part of it. Gasoline is part of it. We've been spoiled for 20 years. I mean, if you're ancient, like I am, you remember the 70s and, and early 80s, and you remember the Fed raising interest rates to 18%, I think, at their peak. And we haven't had that for a long time. So most people grew up in an era of economic, more or less economic stability, periodic recessions, but not inflation like we're seeing now. And people are cranky because it's a new thing. And of course, they're going to blame the incumbent. They're going to ignore the fact that I think the stage for this was set with the Trump tax bill that they passed in 2017. You know, now we're paying the price for that. At the same time, the Biden administration, I think, added gasoline, ironically, to the fire with more spending when neither Trump's action nor Biden's action last year was probably necessary from an economic point of view. And so they both overstimulated the economy. Now we pay the price. Biden gets all the blame because he's in. I don't think he's distinguished himself by trying to pass the blame off on other people. I mean, part of it was it's all a big corporation's fault because they're price gouging. I mean, I'm sure that some people are doing that. That always happens. But that's not the biggest reason. This is a macroeconomic thing. And he's trying to blame gas prices on Putin, you know, which is a valid argument. But they were starting to go up before the invasion. I mean, oil prices were starting to go up before the invasion. They went way up after the invasion. They've stayed up. But it looks like he's trying to pass the buck. And I don't think that sits well with people. I think Janet Yellen got a lot of points yesterday when she said, I was wrong about inflation. I I think I said this before on podcast. When was the last time either of you remember a president saying that they were wrong about something? Actually, Biden did that yesterday, too, on the infant formula issue. He said, I didn't anticipate last year. I didn't anticipate the shortages. I think it's healthy for presidents to do that. And I think they do better in public opinion when they do that. And they do worse when they try to pass the blame off on somebody else, even when it's justified. Didn't President Trump admit he was wrong all the time? (laughs) I think
2: you're you're thinking of the... the, uh, the pantomime President Trump that appeared on some comedy shows. Well, but, I, could say,
0: I could say the same. Didn't President Obama say he was wrong so many, I mean, like, he
2: didn't say he was wrong either. So, never Bill's no. right about it's, that. It's, it's not a habit. But look, Andrew, I think the, the main problem is they've got too many messages. Yeah. Okay? It, it, all I heard for a long time is the energy transition, including from the president himself. Okay, and, and that this is part of the energy transition, which translates to the American people as we're doing this intentionally. It's hard to blame Putin and celebrate the joys of energy transition at the same time. Likewise, the inflation being big business's fault, when you hear Treasury Secretary comes out and basically says, I was wrong. Whether or not that's refreshing, those are inconsistent messages. I think for any of this to stick, they probably ought to figure out what the story is and stick to it. In the meantime, what we're doing on sanctions doesn't seem to be having the effect we want. I did note that our senior trustee, the 98-year-old spring chicken Henry Kissinger, uh, had a few comments at Davos. 99 now. 99. I missed a birthday. Sorry about that, Henry. Being the guy who makes real politics what it is, he was looking for a way to get to get to a negotiated peace, So for what that's worth. Yeah,
1: well, easier for him than it is for the Ukrainians. But he said something important there, too, that is relevant for export controls. And it's something that our listeners should think about and and look for going ahead, which is the other point he made reflecting on Nixon and he opening to China in the 70s was one of the basic principles of international diplomacy is when you have two enemies, uh, it's probably not a good idea to get them to unite with each other. It's better to divide them, which is exactly what they tried to do with Russia and China in the 70s, with some success, partly because he saw that the roots of that division were there anyway between the two, and it was possible for the United States to exploit them. But it raises the question of, you know, what is the United States going to do when we realize, because I think we will at some point, that China's not honoring all of the export control sanctions that we've imposed? and that some stuff is getting out of China and getting into Russia. When that becomes public, there's no evidence of that so far, I have to say that. And the gov- our government's been clear about that, but I think it's inevitable. And if and when that happens, there's going to be an outcry here to hit the Chinese some more. But remember what Kissinger said, Do you want to take actions like that that are going to make their relationship with Russia closer. Right now, I think they're trying to keep it from being too close. You don't want to push them in together it'll be interesting to see how Biden responds at that point. He doesn't get enough credit for understanding the nuances of these things. And he really does. This is is one, one of his areas of expertise. Well, as it stands, Xi Jinping of China has said that
0: there are no limits to the Chinese partnership with Russia. So even though there clearly are some limits.
1: Yeah, that's what he says. But, you know, they're not doing anything. They seem to have honored the sanctions so far. The banks are cautious. You don't see, and you don't see much trade. As I said, there will be leakage. And in the case of China, it's hard to imagine leakage without the Chinese government knowing about it and at least implicitly acknowledging that it's okay. Sooner or later, we're going to be faced with a decision. What are we going to do about it in response? And I think it's a more complicated decision than people think. That's all.
0: Speaking of China, let's turn to a topic we've discussed quite a bit, which is the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework or IPEF. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said recently that most of the participating countries will join most of the framework for pillars. What do you guys think? Do you share this
1: assessment? Why might that not be so likely? They seem to be optimistic about that. Uh, Raimondo is not the only one in the administration that thinks that, and they think it based on conversations they've had with these other governments, You know, I was surprised that ultimately, you know, they got 13 to sign up, although they lowered the bar in order to get them to sign up. But still, 13 is not insignificant. And there seems to be more than the usual suspects, the five that we've talked about, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Japan and Korea, more than that, who seem to be ready to to sign up, including for the trade killers. You know, I think they're expecting Malaysia to come in on that. I think. Indonesia may come in on that in addition to the five. I think, you know, none of this is is certain, but they're moving fairly quickly to try to get those decisions out, meaning the next few weeks. And then we'll see, of course, then all they've done at that point is to sign up for the negotiation. We'll see how deep, really, the talks end up going. I think most people still expect the commerce pillars to be finished sooner and cover more ground than the trade pillar. Look, I think it's encouraging that the
2: U.S., has shown an interest in engaging in the region. And I think the US will be well-received for re-engaging in the Indo-Pacific. And I think that's the positive buzz seems to be related to that. I think that the novelty and structure is interesting, both the content areas, what we're talking about and what we're not talking about, and which agencies have the lead in those areas. But novelty may become a problem as this thing goes on. Is one of the things, how do you get started? How will you know when you've accomplished something? It's a lot easier when you have a prototype somewhere. The old days of negotiating comprehensive free trade agreements, basically, we knew what we did the last time. And in doing it, that all worked fine. And we were able to to basically model future work on what we'd done previously. We're not going to be able to do that this time. I still have a question about the exclusion of market access, goods market access, from the talks entirely only because we say we want to diversify our supply networks. We want to make them more resilient. And what we don't say but probably believe is we'd like to move them out of China if possible. I would just point, there's a 50 year experience in developing supply networks, starting with Japan in their autos and electronics business with Malaysia and Thailand and other East Asian uh, nations. And every time in that 50 years, what drove it was goods market access preferences. And we're just excluding that a priori. So I don't know how any of this works without that. And so we'll find out. Well, so I've heard some say
0: that this doesn't do nearly enough. It's not CPTPP, which Japan and I guess Korea would also want as opposed to this. What do you guys think about that?
1: I think that's right. And we said that from the beginning. This is plan B. I mean, almost everybody that looks at this issue says that the right answer, geopolitically, the right answer from a trade perspective is for the U.S. to join CPTPP. You know, I still think that eventually we'll get around to that. But clearly, right now, the administration doesn't want to do that. They made a decision that they don't want to do that, despite the fact that everybody, most recently the prime minister of New Zealand, the day before yesterday, told the president that he ought to do that. And so this is plan B, and I think that we're all in the mode of, you know, how do we make lemonade out of lemons, and and how do we, you know, help turn this into something real? But Scott's right, it's hard to envision it being something really real in the absence of, of what the Asians politely refer to as tangible benefits. And they still haven't come up with much on that. You know, you push them on that, as we have, and they say, well, money, and they mean it, but they're talking about the commerce pillars, infrastructure, aid for infrastructure, aid for decarbonization and climate policies, competing with the Belt and Road Initiative, basically. They don't put it that way. They've launched a search for funding institutions in the United States that can come up with some cash. That doesn't address the trade issues primarily. And I don't think they've come up with substitutes. Their argument is that what they're pushing, which is better regulation particularly in digital trade, is good for the Asian countries, just as it's good for us. I think that's probably right. It's like sort of like saying, you know, take your medicine, it's good for you. That doesn't mean that the other countries are actually going to swallow it. Well, we probably need to stop kidding ourselves
2: on supply chains because nothing is going to change in the math of supply chains without and if we're not willing to do that, we shouldn't be surprised five years from now if we have about the same reliance on China that we have today.
1: Yeah, I don't entirely agree with that. I think that in a haphazard, one-of-the-time, sand-leaking-out-of-the-bag way, I think decoupling with China is underway. Companies are revising their assessment of the risk of doing business in China, not because the U.S. government is telling them to do that, but because they're figuring it out on their own and because the Chinese continue to do things like forced labor that put Western companies in complicated, awkward positions. So you have a big investment there. And if you're serving the Chinese market, and that's why you're there, then, you know, that's not going to change. But if they're part of your supply chain for shipment back here, I think more and more companies are seriously looking at that.
2: Well, you may be right, Bill, but that's different than whether the U.S. policy is facilitating that. And it looks to me like they don't want to because we don't want to talk about trade and things like trade agreements.
0: So what do you think are the next steps? Will leaders convene this summer?
1: Let's get countries to pick their pillars fairly soon. And then let's spend, uh, I don't know, a month, month and a half negotiating basically what would be a, a statement by ministers of what they intend to do. And I think the statement will end up being an overarching thing. But then there will be separate statements for each pillar. And then they hope I think the idea, which they've said publicly, is to have a ministerial meeting where the ministers of the now 14 countries, 13 plus the US, will all gather together and agree to the statement, which will essentially be kind of a negotiating template. I think. You know, here's what we're going to talk about in each of the pillars. And then they start negotiation. And there you get different estimates of how long that's going to take. The administration says 15 to 18 months. Right now, people are saying, That's probably realistic for the commerce pillars. It may not be realistic for the trade pillar. Yeah, here's where the novelty and scope and content
2: is probably going to make life difficult. But we'll see. Let's get started and see where it goes.
0: Guys, as we've discussed, you know, Taiwan has been excluded from IPEF, but... Taiwan this week agreed to a new trade initiative with the United States, the Initiative on the 21st Century Trade. What's this agreement and how does it fit in with the Biden administration's trade
2: strategy in the Pacific? It looks to me like we've renamed the uh, Trade and Investment Framework Agreement, which I think was first initialed in the Clinton administration. (laughs)
1: and hasn't gone much of anywhere, but Bill may be less cynical. I'm a little less cynical because they've explicitly said they want it to be deeper than TIFA. My take on it was basically it's sort of the IPEF in disguise. They intend to discuss pretty much the same things. And I probably try to reach agreement on pretty much the same things. They've got a list of 11 items, which are a lot of the same items that we proposed in the IPEF context, you're starting to say, well, this is going to go on in parallel. And I think that's the idea. Let's do the same thing. We have to do it for geopolitical reasons, have to do it separately. That may turn out to not be so bad for Taiwan. If you want to have a deeper agreement, I mean, you have to begin with the fact that people are saying, well, we're not negotiating an FTA with Taiwan. Well, true. But the truth is, we're not negotiating FTAs with anybody. Right. You know, we're not even negotiating an FTA with the UK. So, you know, the fact that we're not doing it with Taiwan is not just about Taiwan. You know, we have a trade policy that says we're not negotiating market access and tariffs with anybody. I mean, I think that's a mistake. And I think Scott has been clear that he thinks it's a mistake, too. But that's not about Taiwan. That's No, uh, Taiwan's not being singled out here. We're treating them just treating, like it, everybody it differently. else. So they're going to get the same treatment that the IPF nations are going to get. What they're not getting, I think, is what they really wanted, which was acceptance into the circle of, of sovereign entities that get to negotiate these things. And they don't get that because the other countries, so, at least some of them, indicated it would be hard for them to join if Taiwan were joining. But in terms of the economic benefits, if there are any, I think they'll pretty much be the same as the IPEF ones in the end. Well,
0: for Taiwan, you can't always get what you want. <laughs> yeah. But if you try sometimes. That was the
2: rolling stone. <laughs> but, but in this case, they might get what they need.
0: <laughs> they might get what they need, exactly. <laughs> Gentlemen, we've got a few minutes left. Quickly, let's look at our favorite country other than the United States, Canada. The U.S. has requested a new dispute settlement panel with Canada over dairy. Mon Dieu, what is happening here,
2: guys? Oh, goodness. First of all, fights over agriculture with Canada go back to when the earth cooled or, or when the continent was populated. Not sure when, but someone reminded me in 1974, when the unfair trade tool called Section 301 was created, the first action was actually Canada. Eggs, that was, that was the example of unfair trade at the time. These fights have gone on for a long time. Dairy has particular sensitivities because in both U.S. and Canada, like few other agriculture programs in the United States, oh. dairy is a supply-managed program. And what that means is the government acts to constrain supply in order to keep prices above what they would normally be to keep farmers in the business. There's lots of reasons for it. But supply management programs have a couple of problems. One of them is they're mind-numbingly complicated. The government's trying to balance a whole set of interests that are too complicated for it to do. And so you have restriction after restriction. They're also the the ones that are least amenable to trade liberalization. Cutting a tariff is fairly straightforward. You can have a negotiation about cutting a tariff. But these programs are so complex, and only the insiders really understand them. This was actually the subject of a book by an economics professor who later became the House Majority Leader, a guy named Richard Armey from Texas, He wrote a book called Moscow on the Potomac. And it was all about the complexity of these the supply management programs where only the insiders really know how they work. There's a confrontation in USMCA. It's about the US access to Canadian dairy markets. And there's a horrendous debate over what a processor is or is And that's what it comes down to. And we don't agree, and I have no idea how you solve it. Bill May. Dick Army is a name I haven't heard in a long time. Yeah, Moscow on the Potomac. It was a hilarious book.
1: He was a funny guy. Those were the days. (laughs) I could tell you a story, but I won't. (laughs) I knew it. No, I I agree with Scott. It's, It's ironic that probably our best country friend and neighbor is the one we have the most bitter trade disputes with. Dairy, lumber paper, poultry, It just can't be solved. I don't know why. When I was working for the senator from Pennsylvania, which was, I guess if you count Lake Erie, kind of technically a border state of sorts, we just had poultry problems. We even had chocolate problems with the Canadians, and it was just endless. I think the dairy case is one where it's a very politically sensitive issue in both countries, more politically sensitive in Canada because of the way their government is structured and where their dairy industry is. In the United States, it affects three or four states in a major way, but not everybody. The Canadians are limited in what they can do. They lost the dispute settlement round. We claim that that their fix is not fully compliant. It looks like that's going to be litigated again because we've tried for a new panel. The thing that is interesting about this, and it says something about the relationship, we have not gone to retaliation on this. Hmm. This has been going on for quite a while, and we keep winning But we have not pulled the trigger. You know, we continue to go to dispute settlement, which I think is a sign of both respect for Canada and an effort to keep the relationship stable and and, and even. Um, But I don't don't have a magic formula either for solving it. Well, it's a good thing that our
0: neighbors to the north are nice people. Because can you imagine if they were like a bunch of jerks and we had to deal with
2: all this? For a long time, we did have one of those relationships with our southern neighbor. That was the famous presidential uh, comment by Portofino Diaz, alas, poor Mexico, so far from God, so so close close to the United States. States."
0: (laughs) 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 Well, in these days, the relationships in the hemisphere are good. Uh, Yes. The relationships with the trade guys are great. And guys, thank you so much for all this insight today. We'll be back next week. Same trade time, same trade channel.
1: Bye. Thanks.